Hello and welcome to Abemus Papam, episode 238, Blessed Innocent XI. Dear brothers and sisters, Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Abemus Papam. Today's Pope was born May 19, 1611, the son of a family of relatively well-to-do merchants. His name at birth was Benedetto Odescalchi, and he was one of a relatively large family, with some of his family members already serving in the church in various ways. Unlike many of our popes up to this point, he wasn't destined for the church from a young age. He went through a normal course of studies, being educated at the local Jesuit college, but it seems like he was originally meant to be a businessman like his father and his uncle. His father died when he was in his teens, and he went to live with his uncle in Mantua, and he worked there in his uncle's banking business. And then his mother died when he was 19 of the plague. And his uncle then died a few years later, which left young Benedetto confused as to how to move forward. He and his brother decided to move to Rome, where a cardinal convinced Benedetto to take up the study of law. He studied first in Rome for two years, and then went to Naples with his brother to complete a degree in canon and civil law. It was in Naples they first thought about becoming a priest, and he was given the first step in becoming a cleric by the archbishop there. Once he was back in Rome, he was brought into the papal administration fairly quickly, and he was appointed to a variety of posts by Pope Urban VIII. In 1645, he was named a cardinal deacon by Pope Innocent X, and again, he served in a variety of administrative posts for the next five years. In 1648, he was named the governor of Ferrara, and then he worked incredibly hard to try and end a famine that was happening there when he arrived. He was a strict administrator. He was dedicated to duty. He was particularly pious. Uh, more of the Pius V, Paul IV model than the more freewheeling Baroque cardinals that we've been talking about recently. In 1650, he was appointed the Bishop of Novara. He was ordained a priest in Ferrara and then a bishop not long afterwards. He had to wait to make it to his diocese for a variety of reasons, but he found himself there in 1652. He was known to be a bishop who was particularly devoted to the poor. He spent a lot of his own money to support those in need in his diocese, but he wasn't there for long. In 1654, he went to Rome for business and found himself there when Pope Innocent X died. He was present when Pope Alexander VII was elected, and pretty quickly afterwards, he was petitioned to be relieved of the administration of his diocese, citing health reasons. He was able to resign in 1656, and his brother, who was also a Benedictine monk, was appointed to the diocese in his place. He lived for some time a fairly modest life in Rome. People criticized him because he wore the same clothes all the time, which was a sign of his asceticism. He was also known to be a big patron of the poor during this time, and he served on various papal commissions. He became a member of the flying squadron, quote-unquote flying squadron of cardinals, who have been so influential in the past couple of papal elections. Now, after the death of Pope Clement X, whose election to the papacy was itself a huge compromise of a divided college of cardinals, next election was even more divided. It went on for months, with the French consistently vetoing candidates and no one getting a majority. In fact, the last time around, the French had rejected Cardinal Odaleski and would probably have done so this time too, but negotiations made it pretty unanimous that he was the compromise pick. So finally, on September 21st, 1676, Cardinal Odaleski was elected Pope. He took the name Pope Innocent XI in honor of Pope Innocent X, who had named him a cardinal. Now, the major issue that Rome had been facing internally over the past several episodes is the scandal of nepotism. The first thing every Baroque and Renaissance pope did was appoint their nephew a cardinal, even the most pious of them, and then many of them used their position to enrich their families. Pope Innocent XI was strictly opposed to nepotism, and right off the bat made it clear that things were going to be changing in Rome. The first thing he did was require all the cardinals to sign a document outlining the program of reform for the papal curia. He outlawed nepotism both by the Pope and the Cardinals, and he drastically cut papal expenditures by living incredibly frugally. 
This helped with the precarious financial situation the Holy See had seen over the last century and eventually led to a budget surplus. He worked on this personally and intently, and by 1679, he could report a totally balanced budget and a reduction of papal debt by 10%. But as we've seen with other strict reforming popes in the past, soon people start regretting his election. A lot of the public was used to the various forms of advancement and at times outright corruption that was found in the papal curia. Plus, if you cut back on extravagance in your court, you cut back on people who are giving money and promotions, and eventually those things start to trickle down to the common person on the street who can't sell his cloth because the cardinals don't have the money to buy it anymore. A cardinal who has an extravagant household is economically supporting others who provide for his extravagance. And on top of that, Innocent was morally stricter, down to the fact that he refused communion to those who were modestly dressed. And this upset people as well. He wasn't a particularly personable pope either. He worked hard, very hard, in a keen sense of duty, but he wasn't a great politician. He didn't make himself present to the people, and he worked with a very small circle of close collaborators and didn't let many others in. His attempt to ban nepotism was consequently not very effective and was pushed back against by many of his cardinals. Now we have to turn from the internal papal politics to geopolitics, and specifically we have to look at the advance of the Ottoman Turks again. We kind of mentioned them last episode, but we haven't really talked about them for a while, not since the Battle of Lepanto and the papacy of St. Pius V. Well, since that time, the Ottomans had advanced through much of Eastern Europe, and they were now knocking on the doors of the Habsburg Empire and of Poland. Pope Innocent saw this as an immense threat to the Christian Europe and tried to make the other European nations see this as well. But like so many popes before him, he he had to try and get everyone on the same page to form an alliance and then to drive the Ottoman forces back from Europe. And like so many popes before him, his efforts were hampered by squabbling among the various European powers, in particular in this case by France. The Pope had had issues with the French for several episodes now, in part because the, of Jansenism, in part because Louis XIV gradually was encroaching on the rights of the church in France and setting up a system which today we know as Gallicanism. We'll talk a lot about that in the future. Louis XIV had actually formed an alliance with the Ottomans, so with the people who were trying to conquer Christian Europe, in order to box in the Holy Roman Emperor, because what's more important is beating the Holy Roman Emperor. And so any activities by all the countries of Europe against the Ottomans were going to find resistance in France. On top of that, there was a number of local lords and officials in countries like Poland who had become pretty pro-French and thus pro-Ottoman, again, hampering the building of an alliance against the Ottomans. So we briefly need to talk a little bit more about the French before we systematically treat the Ottomans. The French, along with trying to put the brakes on a crusade, were trying to usurp the rights of the church in France. The French king had always had some rights to appoint bishops in parts of his territory, but Louis XIV was insisting on a new form of absolute rule in which the king was in charge of everything in his country. This obviously to him meant the church as well, and so he took to himself certain church prerogatives, which he had no right to. He did this in 1673. Several French bishops, including two of the Jansenists, complained to the Pope, who undertook an investigation and protested the usurpation. King Louis followed it up with calling the clergy of France together and promulgating in 1682 what are known to history as the Gallican Articles. Gallican comes from the Latin word for France, Gaul. These asserted that though the Pope was primary in matters of faith, his primacy was limited by the powers of the ruler, and thus Louis had the authority to do what he wanted in France. As soon as they were promulgated, the Pope annulled the Gallican Articles and refused to acknowledge any new bishops who had been part of the assembly. Now, more will follow. This fight isn't over. As I said, we're going to talk about this for a while, but we have to go back to the East before we deal more with France. 
So the first task of the Pope's defense of Europe was to try and bring about peace in Europe in general. And there were a couple of wars going on at the time. So papal diplomats convened a peace conference at Nijmegen in the Netherlands that did result in a brief cessation of conflicts in Europe. It wasn't perfect. It wasn't everything the Pope wanted, but there was a positive step forward. The next step was an alliance between countries in the East who were most directly in the line of the Ottoman advance. It was tough, but after some convincing, the Poles and the Habsburgs agreed to an alliance. If either Vienna or Krakow was under attack, both sides would send troops to defend it. And the Pope promised to send a significant sum of money and a cardinal protector to Poland. Now, not long after the treaty was signed in Warsaw, the Ottomans were at the gates of Vienna on July 14, 1683. The Ottoman forces demanded the surrender and promised leniency if the city did capitulate. But the Viennese had just heard of a similar situation in a town not that far away, which after the gates of the city were opened, the people were massacred by the Ottoman forces. The Ottomans besieged the city of Vienna for months, and they were near defeat. The Ottomans had blasted holes in the city walls, the people were starving, and the soldiers were beginning to lose their will to fight. When finally, on September 12th, the Polish and Imperial troops were able to raise the siege. Leading a decisive cavalry charge himself, Polish King John Sobolewski defeated the Ottoman army, who was forced to retreat. Standing on the field of victory, the Polish king was reported to say, We came, we saw, God conquered. The Ottoman defeat was the high watermark of Ottoman aggression, and the furthest they would advance into Europe. Pope Innocent XI was overjoyed with news. Like St. Pius V before him, he attributed the victory to the intercession of Our Lady, and he instituted the Feast of the Holy Name of Mary to be celebrated by the whole church in her honor. But he didn't let one victory go to his head. He knew it was close-run thing, and that the Ottoman advance had, been pushed, had to be pushed further back. So he brought together the victorious Poles and Habsburgs and invited the Venetians into the alliance to work together to push the Ottomans even further back. The campaign that followed led to the removal of Turkish forces from Hungary, culminating in the victory at the city of Buda and the eventual re-establishment of Christian rule over much of Central Europe. But we have to turn from success in the East back to that conflict with France, because as you better believe that Louis XIV was pretty upset that the Holy Roman Empire had won such a huge victory. In 1688, the Elector of Cologne was open, and there were two leading candidates. One was promoted by the King of France, and one who was backed by the Holy Roman Emperor. And so, obviously, to get back at the Holy Roman Emperor, the King of France wanted his guy to win. Then, when the election wasn't definitive, apparently if the election isn't definitive, the rules stated that the Pope got to pick the winner, and so he obviously sided with the Holy Roman Emperor's candidate. Louis XIV was upset. He took papal territory in Avignon in southern France and sent troops into Germany. Louis XIV's one supporter was James II of England, but then in 1688, James II was deposed in the so-called Glorious Revolution, in which he was replaced by the more Protestant William of Orange. Pope Innocent was originally supportive of James II because he was sympathetic to Catholicism, but he was also too closely aligned with Louis XIV, so he wasn't too upset when he got deposed. Now, the conflict with France was not over, but it won't be solved by this papacy. Pope Innocent was a remarkably holy man, but he died on August 12, 1689, of a fever. He was buried in St. Peter's Basilica, where you can see his body today at the altar of the Transfiguration. He was beatified by Pope Pius XII in 1956, and he was succeeded by Pope Alexander VIII. Thank you for listening to Abemus Papam. You can find the rest of the Catholic Link podcast at catholiclink.org or on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thank you, and God bless you.